Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, we have eight extraordinary nominees that are before us today in two panels. Uh, and uh, I want to thank Senator Portman for his willingness uh, to help us on this hearing so that we could accommodate these hearings before uh, the end of the year. Uh, so thank you, Senator Portman, for doing this. Uh, both of us have decided to defer our rather lengthy opening statements so that we can hear first from our colleagues that are here that I understand have pressing appointments. Uh, so let me first, if I might, recognize Senator Warner for an introduction. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Portman. It's, it's great to see you. Um, thank you for the courtesy. We are in the middle of an intel session where we've got a we're doing a big briefing on China to a series of classified business leaders, so I'm very, very appreciative. This is a great panel. I, I'm here to introduce my dear friend Fabiana Jorge, but, um, and I hope that Chris Coons won't screw up the introduction of our former colleague, Joe Donnelly. The balance of this panel, I know Leopoldo, who will, um, if Fabiana is, is confirmed, uh, Fabiana will work with uh, Leopoldo, who's up as director of the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, is a Virginian. I want to give his, um, my hearty endorsement to him as well. Um, Fabian and I go back a long way, um, 33 years. Uh, she and her husband, I knew her husband, Doug Sosnick, uh, before. And while I can't completely claim that I was the matchmaker uh, of their wedding. I was the person that tried to convince Doug repeatedly to go visit this wonderful country, Argentina, that where I'd lived as an exchange student. Um, and through that visitation, uh, Doug and Fabiana uh, developed a relationship, a marriage. I was proud to be at their marriage in Argentina. And um, I can't think of many people I would break away from a uh, Intel meeting to come and kind of put my, my two cents in. I will also add, um, you're going to hear as well, hopefully later in the second panel, from Roy Blunt. So this kind of bipartisan affection for Fabiana Jorge is uh, is universal for everyone who, who knows her. Um, she's been in this country 21 years. She is an expert not only on Latin America, she's an expert on issues around particularly pharmaceuticals and drugs in flow of trade um, between Latin America and, and our country. Uh, I can speak uh, enormously of her intellect, her values, her, you know, in many ways, kind of classic uh, American immigrant story as someone who is coming over to our country, citizen, and wants to give back and wants to make a contribution. I can't think of anyone uh, that would be better suited uh, to be the associate director at the Inter-American Development Bank than Fabiana Jorge, and I will um, ask uh, my colleagues to give her favorable consideration when she's up in the second panel. And I very much appreciate the, the committee's courtesy letting me um, even jump a friend in front of my friend Chris Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, Senator Warner. We appreciate those comments. It's always nice to have you before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Coons, we get all the time before our committee as a member of our committee. And we all had a fight as to who was going to introduce Senator Donnelly. And Senator Coons won out. So Senator Coons? Thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Senator Portman. I'm glad I won this fight. Uh, this is a wonderful panel uh, with uh, another group of skilled and talented nominees by this administration, um, all of whom I support, uh, a number of whom I have worked with previously and know and look forward to supporting 
in their next chapter in their service, but I'm particularly grateful for the opportunity to introduce today uh, my friend and our former colleague here in the Senate, Joe Donnelly of Indiana. Um, Joe was uh, born in New York, uh, but had the wisdom to go to the University of Notre Dame in South Bend. Uh, once there, he never left. Uh, he met and married his sweetheart, uh, Jill. Um, the two of them went on to become uh, double domers and lifetime uh, members of the Notre Dame family. Joe got his law degree from the University of Notre Dame, stayed and practiced in the South Bend area. A successful lawyer and businessman, uh, he ran for and won uh, Indiana's second district congressional seat, uh, represented that seat from 2007 to 2013. Uh, a colleague of ours here in the United States Senate from 2013-2019, uh, Joe served on the Armed Services, Banking, and Agriculture Committees, uh, but frankly, more importantly, in my view, was the heart and the attitude that Joe brought to his service here. Uh, he was recognized uh, by the center named uh, for Richard Luger, former senator from Indiana, as one of the most bipartisan senators. He worked hard uh, to bring us together, Democrats and Republicans, uh, in order to represent Hoosiers well. Um, he is a proud uh, father of Molly and Joe Jr., um, a dedicated and loyal member of his community. I recently had the blessing of an opportunity to be with him at a 9-11 uh, commemorative uh, in his home community. And to see and hear the ways in which he was greeted and celebrated and recognized by folks uh, he had previously represented was a reminder that Joe's never forgotten where he's from. Uh, I'll close by saying this. Um, we send our very best around the world as diplomats. Uh, and when we send someone from the world of elected politics, sometimes there's a question about whether uh, they also meet that test of being the best to represent us. Uh, Joe is going to represent us, Senator Donnelly is going to represent us uh, at the Holy See. And like another uh, friend of mine, a former colleague, uh, former senator, um, who bears the same name, um, Joe Donnelly is someone who has lived his faith. Uh, as a child, when he was 10, his mother passed. And uh, his father and his family um, leaned hard on their faith and wrapped their arms around each other to get through that toughest of times. And I have known Joe Donnelly to be a man who... Um, has been inspired by his faith um, to meet the needs of the world and his neighbors in the moment, and who has been sustained by his faith in moments of both joy and challenge. I think we will send our very best to the Holy See to represent us at the Vatican when we confirm Senator Joe Donnelly. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Coons. We appreciate that introduction very much. Uh, we understand that Senator Kane, uh, who will be here shortly, wants to do an introduction for Ms. Taylor and Mr. Martinez. Martinez. We will have those introductions uh, when Senator Kane um, uh, is here. So uh, let me uh, first welcome all of our nominees. We thank you very much for your willingness to serve our country. Uh, we know this is a sacrifice for public service, not only for yourself, but also uh, for your families. So we uh, thank you very much uh, for your willingness to serve. We have two panels because of the numbers today. Uh, we have two nominees for very important ambassadorships in our country, uh, Ambassador Hill for the uh, Republic of Serbia. Serbia is a critical nation in a very difficult part of the world. Uh, we know in the Balkans today, we still have unfinished business uh, in regards uh, to the full integration of these countries. Serbia has been on an inconsistent path for integration into Europe, and it still represents a concern as to what's going to happen in Bosnia-Herzegovina 
with the Republic of Srpska looking to Serbia as a support group to prevent the full uh, reforms necessary for the stability in, in Bosnia. So we'll be interested in, in learning Ambassador Hill's uh, priorities and how we can uh, improve our relationship with Serbia, but also improve the stability of that region. Uh, in regards to the Holy See, uh, we certainly welcome uh, Senator Donnelly, our former colleague here. The Holy See is a partner for the United States in promoting universal values and human rights, and uh, be interested as to how you see our mission at the Holy See reinforcing our concerns about challenges that we see uh, around the world uh, on uh, human rights and uh, dealing with poverty issues. Uh, we have critical nominees in regards uh, to uh, other ambassadorships. We have the, uh, our representative to the United Nations Human Rights Council with the uh, position of ambassador. Uh, we, uh, we, we welcome Michelle Taylor uh, to our committee. The Human Rights Council has received a great deal of attention uh, in uh, this Congress. Uh, we recognize that there have been different views among administrations as to the U.S. participation in the Human Rights Council because of its uh, outrageous discrimination against the state of Israel and the way that it has uh, highlighted that country. Uh, we recognize, though, that there are many trouble spots around the world, and we would welcome you know, your thoughts as to how the Human Rights Council can deal with the uh, human rights crises that we see in so many countries around the world, from, from Yemen to Ethiopia to Burma to China. Uh, clearly, there is a role for our U.S. leadership in the United Nations Human Rights uh, Council. And then lastly, on the first panel, we have Alice Albright, who has uh, been nominated as the Chief Executive Officer to the uh, Millennium uh, Challenge Corporation, uh, one of our most important tools to deal with countries that share our value but need help in regards to a, a transformational economic programs. Uh, so we look forward uh, to your leadership and your thoughts as to how we can better utilize that particular tool. On our second panel, and I'll introduce our second panel a little bit later, uh, we, we have four nominees that are all engaged in regards to our economic programs. The director of the Trade and Development Bank, director of the African Development Bank, executive director of the International American Development Bank, and alternative executive director of the Inter-American Inter Development Bank. So we, the second panel, we will be concentrating uh, on the economic tools that we have available for a more prosperous, stable world. Before uh, turning to our nominees, uh, let me first uh, turn to our ranking member, uh, Senator Portman. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I thank the nominees who are before us today for your willingness to step forward and, and serve your country, many of you again. Uh, it's a diverse panel. Look forward to diving into some of the issues that your new roles might present. Senator Donnelly, welcome back to the Senate. It was great speaking with you last week. Uh, I, I can't... Uh, improve upon the introduction you just received, Senator Warner, so I'll leave it at that. Um, Ms. Albright, as we discussed last week, uh, I'm a strong supporter of MCC and the Millennium Challenge Corporation. I, I like what they do in terms of relying on a rigorous uh, analytical approach to aid, ensuring that it's smart development and that it's metrics-based and focused on getting the best results for both the partner country and U.S. taxpayers. Look forward to talking about that. Uh, Ambassador Hill, uh, good to see you. You're no stranger to this committee. 
uh, this time looking to reenter diplomatic service in another global hotspot I see. Um, we've worked together in the past. I've enjoyed that. As I recall, we first met in Poland about 15 years ago at the ambassador's residence uh, this time of year. Um, I recall your, uh, your Christmas tree up in the residence. Um, I appreciate your service as ambassador to South Korea and, of course, as assistant secretary for East Asia at State. I particularly appreciate the help you gave me during a very difficult time when a young man out of Wormbeer from my hometown was wrongly detained and horribly treated uh, by North Korea. Um, Ms. Taylor, thank you and your family for your willingness to serve. Uh, I will say up front that I'm very concerned about the bias I see uh, at the UN Human Rights Council. My colleague, Senator Cardin, just mentioned this. Uh, that body, in my view, is consistently discriminated against our ally, Israel. And I want to talk to you about that and look forward to your thoughts on how you would use your voice, if confirmed, uh, to speak out against that kind of uh, double standard and, and discrimination. So with that, again, thanking you for your willingness to step forward to serve our country. Uh, I turn it back to you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Portman. We'll, we'll now hear from our four nominees. Let me introduce them, and they'll be asked to give opening statements. Um, try to do it within five minutes. Your full statements will be made part of our record. Ambassador Christopher Hill is a career member of the Foreign Service. Before he retired in 2010, Ambassador Hill served as U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, Korea, Poland, and Macedonia as well as Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs, and head of the U.S. delegation to the six-party talks on North Korea. For 10 years, Ambassador Hill was dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies, and then chief advisor to the Chancellor for Global Engagement, and a professor of the practice of diplomacy at the University of Denver. Uh, he's given his career uh, to foreign service. Michelle Taylor is a board member of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights and served as its Power to Inspire Chair and Development Chair. Ms. Taylor has been an active member of the Committee on the State-Sponsored Anti-Semitism and Holocaust Denial, a member of the Committee on Conscience, and a member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum Council. Ms. Taylor earned her BA from Miles College and her MA from Boston University. Ms. Alice Albright, is the Chief Executive Officer of the Global Partnership for Education's Secretariat and served in the Obama administration from 2009 to 2013 as the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. Prior to this, Ms. Albright was the Chief Financial and Investment Officer at the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization and worked as a banker focusing on emergency markets. At the uh, Global Office for Vaccine Immunization, Ms. Albright led the innovative finance program enhancing the delivery and financing of vaccines to poor countries around the world. And then lastly, our former colleague, Senator Joe Donnelly. I'm pleased to see you back before the United States Senate. Mr. Donnelly served as the United States Senator from Indiana from 2013 to 2019, was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 2007 to 2013, representing India's, Indiana's second congressional district. He was a member of the Afghanistan Study Group and has been a professor at the University of Notre Dame and very ably introduced by our colleague, Senator Coons. With that, we'll hear from Ambassador Hill. Thank you very much, uh, Ranking Member uh, Portman, for those uh, kind remarks about our, 
our background. And uh, with your permission, uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to introduce my wife, who is uh, sitting behind me, Julie Hill here, who's a uh, retired school teacher from, from Florida. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee, it's an honor to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Serbia. I'm humbled by the trust President Biden and Secretary Blinken have placed in me to represent the American people. I hope to earn your trust as well, and if confirmed, would work closely with you and with your staff to advance U.S. interests in Serbia. Years ago, I began my foreign service career in Belgrade, and later I participated in a process that culminated in peace talks in Senator uh, Portman's home state of uh, Ohio, that is in peace talks in Dayton, Ohio, and those peace talks that ended the conflict in Bosnia-Herzegovina. I returned to the region as the U.S. Ambassador to uh, Macedonia, took on additional responsibilities at the time as Special Envoy to the Kosovo Crisis in 1998-99, and I've done my best to be well prepared to serve as the Chief of Mission in Serbia and to advance U.S. priorities there. I would be truly honored to serve as U.S. Ambassador in Serbia. Serbia is a linchpin for stability and progress in the Western Balkans. The United States, together with our European partners, continues to support Serbia's development as a modern, prosperous European country at peace with its neighbors. Serbia's progress is integral to achieving U.S. strategic goals and revitalizing our European alliances, uh, support democracy and the rule of law, promote economic cooperation, and address global and regional challenges. The United States remains committed to deepening our, deepening our bilateral relationship with Serbia through further political, economic, and security cooperation. As we celebrate, uh, as our two countries celebrate 140 years of diplomatic relations, I look forward to strengthening people-to-people -people ties, working with youth and civil society, and sharing the American experience in Serbia. If confirmed, I will lead a government-wide effort to advance key U.S. priorities in Serbia. The United States supports Serbia's own stated strategic priority of accession to the European Union. To this end, Belgrade must accelerate its serious reforms to meet EU standards, and we look forward to the EU to recognize that progress has been made and reaffirm that membership is indeed possible. With U.S. technical support, Serbia has made significant steps, particularly economic and fiscal management, but clearly more needs to be done. The United States continues to support Serbia's progress in other areas, including uh, battling corruption, improving the rule of law, and strengthening democratic institutions. If confirmed, I will encourage electoral transparency and fairness ahead of the April 2022 elections, I will try to reinforce the importance of media freedom and support the crucial role of civil society. A diverse political landscape and a free and independent press are critical to Serbia's success as a European democracy. Most importantly, and as a prerequisite for eventual EU accession, Serbia must normalize its relationship with Kosovo. 
The United States strongly supports the EU facility di facilitated dialogue as the best chance for both countries to resolve outstanding differences. As President Biden has stated, the U.S. believes mutual, uh, mutual recognition is the best way to go forward. Serbia's European potential and strengthen its regional stability and security is vital. If confirmed, I will encourage Serbia to engage vigorously and urgently to find a way forward with its neighbor. If confirmed, the safety and security of Americans and the U.S. mission personnel will be my top priority. I'll continue our longstanding efforts to push for full investigation into the 1999 murder of the Butici brothers, three American citizens executed while in Serbian police custody. I'm committed to pressing the Serbian government to ensure that those involved are brought to justice regardless of rank or position. I will work to inv invigorate Serbia's economic future by encouraging policies that bolster its international investment, climate, strengthen its infrastructure, improve its uh, energy diversity. And importantly, I will try to help S Serbia build resilience to malign in ex external influences, including from Russia and China. Serbia has enormous potential with an ex educated and talented uh, workforce, and I think there is a large role for U.S.-based firms to play uh, in, in Serbia. If confirmed, I'll continue to support American companies exploring those opportunities. Finally, if confirmed, I'll build on the positive momentum of recent bilateral defense consultations, the first in five years to expand mutually beneficial defense cooperation. Serbia is an important par uh, partner and uh, of the United States, particularly through its 15-year state partnership with the Ohio National Guard. While not a NATO member, Serbia is active in the Partnership for Peace and a global security contributor to one of, as one of Europe's largest uh, uh, per capita troop contributing uh, countries. It would be an honor to lead the U.S. Uh, mission in Belgrade and work with the government and people in, in Serbia. Thank you very much for the opportunity to appear before you, and I do welcome your questions. Thank you, Ambassador Hill. We'll now hear from Ms. Taylor. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Portman, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to serve as the United States Representative to the United Nations Human Rights Council. My sincerest thanks in advance to Senator Kane for what I know will be a kind introduction, and, and thank you, Senator Cardin, for making one yourself. I am deeply honored to be here and grateful to the President, Secretary Blinken, for their confidence and support. I would like to thank my family for their love, faith, and unwavering encouragement. My two children, Zach, who is with me today, and his partner, Raymond, and my daughter, Zoe, and her husband, Christian, are a constant source of inspiration. Most importantly, I am thankful to my husband, Kenneth, who is also with me today, who lifts me up at every opportunity. I am the proud daughter and granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. Today, December 14th, is the anniversary of the death of both my mother and grandmother. And I know that they and my grandfather would be so proud to see me appearing before you today. Mr. Chairman, my family legacy is one of survival. 
I feel a responsibility to serve as a champion for everyone whose rights are threatened so that what happened to my mother's family does not happen to others. I am proud of my Jewish identity and the rise of global anti-Semitism and anti-Israel bias have only made me more resolute to embrace it. I am also grateful to my father, Nick Nichols, who thankfully is able to watch from California today. For raising me with the belief that my gender should in no way limit my opportunities or diminish my accomplishments. This helped shape my lifelong dedication to the empowerment of women and girls in all their diversity and my belief in the power of partnership. Public service is an honor and responsibility I have embraced throughout my life, including when I was appointed by President Obama to the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, where I worked on genocide and atrocity prevention as a member of the Committee on Conscience. As a board member for the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, I have brought my voice to today's human rights challenges, local, national, and global. If confirmed, I would bring with me to the UN Human Rights Council my experience and a determination to defend the human rights of all individuals. I would take on this important role with my eyes wide open. The Council is the most important multilateral venue designed to promote international human rights, but its flaws and failings are real. Among those flaws is a persistent, inexcusable bias against Israel the only nation in the world assigned a permanent agenda item at the Council. As long as it persists, I will take every opportunity to demand an end to the bias, to insist on the fair treatment of Israel like any other country, and the elevation of genuine human rights challenges on the Council's agenda. This includes tirelessly underscoring our objection to the open-ended Commission on Inquiry targeting Israel. The Council's membership is clearly part of the problem. Nations such as Venezuela with abysmal human rights records have no place on a council dedicated to promoting those rights and protecting those defending them. And in the absence of a US presence on the council, China has assumed an outsized voice despite its own human rights record. I understand the difficulty in reforming the council's membership rules, but if confirmed, I will lead an effort to encourage credible nations from all regions to step forward to serve on this body and deny those seats to human rights abusers. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, members of the committee, when Secretary of State Blinken announced the President's decision that the United States would again seek election to the Council, he laid out these very concerns. He also underscored the very real importance and utility of a functional Human Rights Council, which at its best prompts investigation of abuses in places such as Syria and North Korea, which gives voice to those working against racism, intolerance, and religious persecution, and promotes concrete action to advance respect for the human rights of women, LGBTQI persons, and minorities. I understand the skepticism of those who believe the United States should not legitimize this very imperfect body with its presence. And I know that if confirmed, there will be struggles. But I also know that conversations about global human rights are poorer without an American voice. Human rights defenders around the world are more vulnerable if the United States is not a present forceful leader in venues such as the Human Rights Council. And I know from experience that more can be accomplished in active partnership than in principled absence. 
The President and Secretary Blinken have placed human rights at the center of U.S. foreign policy. If confirmed, I will be a relentless advocate for American interests at the Human Rights Council and in defense of the human rights that should be enjoyed by all. Thank you. I welcome your questions. Uh, thank you, Ms. Taylor, for your, for your comments. We'll now hear from Ms. Albright. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and members of the committee. I thank you so much for the opportunity to appear before you today. I am so deeply honored to have been nominated by President Biden to serve as the next Chief Executive Officer of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. If confirmed, I look forward to, wor to working with what appears to be a very talented and committed team at MCC to advance the delivery of the agency's mission, to ensure that it is well positioned to address the challenges of our time. I'd like to commend the staff at MCC who have helped me to prepare for this hearing, as well as several of MCC's former CEOs who have generously offered their time and advice. I'd also like to thank the many senators from this committee and their staffs with whom I've had a chance to meet prior to this hearing. Should I be confirmed, I look forward to staying in touch and working closely with you over the months and years ahead to ensure that you're kept abreast of MCC's progress and issues. And finally, I'd like to thank my wonderful family and dear friends who are here today for all the, and online for all their support and encouragement over the many years. And Mr. Chairman, if you'll allow, I'd like to introduce my wonderful older son, David, uh, who is here representing our families. I'm deeply honored by the prospect of leading an innovative and effective agency that delivers on a singular mission to reduce poverty through economic growth. MCC's focus on good governance and accountability, as well as the agency's commit commitment to country ownership and institutional capacity building, creates a more stable and secure world with more opportunities for inclusive economic growth, both at home and abroad. This is an exciting time for MCC as the agency approaches its 20th anniversary. MCC's selective, evidence-based approach and partnership focus delivers durable impact in key sectors such as infrastructure, agriculture, and water in well-governed low and lower middle-income countries around the world. With cost-effective projects and a dedicated staff of technical experts, MCC incentivizes partner governments to undertake significant reforms to create the right conditions to support sustained economic growth that endures long after MCC's investments are concluded. I've spent my career in international finance and development. Early on, I was trained as a banker and worked in the emerging markets at a time when many regions were encountering seismic shifts in their access to finance. I witnessed firsthand the impact the Latin American debt crisis had on the region, the opportunities that arose from the transition for South Africa to a post-apartheid economy, and the impact that the fall of the Iron Curtain had on Eastern European economies. What I learned was that working hand-in-hand -hand with governments and the private sector would make a difference in helping countries in those regions develop and evolve. More recently, I have devoted 16 years to global development challenges. I've held leadership positions in two global public-private partnerships, one in global health 
and in my current position as the Chief Executive of the Global Partnership for Education, where we work closely with the U.S. as a major donor. At GPE, we work to ensure that children in the poorest countries have access to a quality, basic education. I've also held a leadership position at the U.S. Export-Import Bank. I've worked closely with the U.S. and other donor and developing country governments, the private sector and foundations, civil society, and others to secure better outcomes and improved and healthier lives. Over the years, I've visited dozens of countries and met with their leaders, health and education ministers, finance ministers, parliamentarians, health workers, teachers, to get a full understanding of priorities, implementation challenges, and what was happening on the ground. It is this working in partnership that makes the difference in advancing development goals, and if confirmed, how I hope to lead as the CEO of MCC. MCC is a gem within the US government foreign assistance toolkit. If confirmed, it'll be a true honor to join the team there and work with Congress and this committee over the years ahead. I thank you so much for your consideration of my nomination and would be happy to answer any questions that you have. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mrs. Albright. We'll now hear uh, from Senator Donnelly. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Senator Cardin, Ranking Member Senator Portman, and distinguished members of the committee, it is a privilege to appear before you. I am honored to have been nominated to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See, and I thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their confidence in me. I want to thank my wife, Jill, for her support and help and friendship throughout this journey. She would be here, except that she is helping to take care of our young granddaughter, Josephine. Our daughter, Molly, her husband, Mike, and their daughter, Josephine, son, Joe Jr., and his wife, Jessica, my sisters and brother, and so many other friends who have touched my life over the years. I want to thank the people of Indiana for having given me the chance to represent them in the United States House of Representatives and in the United States Senate. I felt privileged to have that opportunity and to have such examples to model myself after as my mom, my dad, my second mom, Joan, Father Ted Hesburgh, the former president of the University of Notre Dame, mentors like Congressman John Bradamus and Senate giants like Richard Luger and Birch Bayh of Indiana, whose legacy was caring, duty, competence, and love of country. I believe my service in the House and Senate has helped prepare me for this posting to represent the United States. If confirmed, I will work with the representatives of the Holy See to make progress as the critical issues facing our country and the world. If confirmed, I plan to bring the same public service ethic, collaborative mindset, and focus on delivering for the American people that define my time in Congress to the task of expanding and deepening our partnership with the Holy See. The Holy See is unique among states with an influence that reaches across the globe. More than 1.3 billion Catholics worldwide and millions of non-Catholics take inspiration from Pope Francis' leadership. Additionally, hundreds of Catholic-affiliated NGOs, charities, religious orders, and lay organizations provide healthcare and education, build peace, and make personal connections with people in every part of the world. 
The United States and the Holy See have had formal diplomatic relations since 1984. But our relationship runs much deeper than that. Back to the very founding of our country, when George Washington dispatched our first envoy to the Papal States in 1797. If confirmed, I see three core priorities. First, promoting peace and security. If confirmed, my foremost priority will always be the safety and security of Americans, including the personnel and family members assigned to Embassy Vatican. But our shared interest in promoting peace and stability extends much further. Vatican diplomats and Catholic organizations serve as effective mediators to end conflicts, promote peace, and advocate for the release of political prisoners. If confirmed, I would seek to strengthen our quiet diplomacy with the Vatican to resolve crises peacefully. Second, advancing human rights. Promoting human rights and human dignity lies at the heart of the U.S. Holy See partnership. The Holy See is a leader in defending religious freedom and promoting interfaith dialogue. Under Pope Francis' leadership, the Vatican has prioritized efforts to combat human trafficking and Catholic organizations and religious orders provide essential care and services to human trafficking victims all over the world. Pope Francis has condemned anti-Semitism and violence against Jews. With threats to human rights rising in many parts of the world, our cooperation with the Vatican is increasingly important. Third, tackling the climate crisis. Pope Francis has been a vocal advocate for protecting the environment and addressing climate change, including through his second encyclical. Vatican City and Catholic organizations are working hard to implement Pope Francis' climate vision in their own operations by reducing waste and emissions. If confirmed, I look forward to identifying new ways to collaborate with the Holy See to raise global ambitions to tackle a climate crisis. I would feel fortunate to be a part of the team with the incredibly talented individuals who work at the U.S. Embassy to the Holy See and all the other dedicated folks who serve our beloved country. As a former member of this body, I also eagerly look forward to partnering with Congress to further U.S. priorities with the Holy See. If confirmed, I enthusiastically await engaging Vatican officials, sharing ideas, and deepening our collaboration as we work together to build a brighter future. Thank you so much for the opportunity to testify today. I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you, Senator Donnelly. First, I have a few questions that speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness of all officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you. I would ask each of you to provide either a yes or no answer to these questions. This will be preliminary to the customary five-minute rounds. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Yes. Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Yes. Do you commit to engage in meaningful consultation while policies are being deployed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. 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 Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 Let the record show that all four of the nominees answered yes to all four of the questions. 
Ms. Taylor, I think you've been saved. Senator Kane is here. Let's see whether you're thanking him for such a nice comments, in fact, is justified or not. Senator Kane. <laughs> uh, Mr. Chair, thank you. And my deep um, congratulations to this very esteemed panel. It's so good to see Senator Donnelly, my longtime friend. And Mr. Chair, I have the pleasure of saying a word about another longtime friend, Michelle Taylor, uh, and I apologize for being late, but thank you for giving me this opportunity. And if you would additionally indulge me, I would also like to say a word about one of the nominees on panel two, because I'm not gonna be able to be here for panel two. So I would try to do both at once if, if that's acceptable. That's fine, certainly. Um, two very qualified nominees, Michelle Taylor to be the US representative to the UN Human Rights Council, and then Leopoldo Martinez who is here a great friend to be U.S. Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Fund. First, Michelle, um, longtime friend, hails from Georgia, community volunteer, educator, outdoors woman, and tireless human rights champion. She served as a board member of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, longtime member of the uh, board of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, where she served diligently, motivated by her mother, who was a Holocaust survivor. Michelle has decades-long experience in working in politics, advancing opportunity and empowerment for women and girls, especially members of the LGBTQ community. In 2014, under the direction of the White House, Michelle helped to generate the report on the 20th anniversary of the Violence Against Women Act through the office of the Vice President, now President Biden. She continues to give back to students, business executives, and veterans as a course director and lead instructor for North Carolina Outward Bound School. Uh, I've known Michelle and her family, including her children now, for about a dozen years. And for many years, I, I've known her for a long time, and I know she'll represent the Senate, the United States, very, very well in this capacity. She has a uh, tenacious spirit wrapped in a diplomatic spirit, and both of those traits, tenacity and diplomacy, will help her be a strong voice for the United States on the Human Rights Council, elevating pressing human rights causes within the institution and also pushing back against the anti-Israel bias that has plagued that institution for years. So I, I urge the committee to support her strongly. And if I might say about my wonderful friend, Leopoldo Martinez of Virginia for the position of United States Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, it's great to have a Senator here uh, in Joe Donnelly, but it's also great to have a parliamentarian here. Leopoldo Martinez in an earlier chapter of his life was a parliamentarian in Venezuela. Um, he's had a long and distinguished career, both public service and private sector. He's a Venezuelan-American immigrant. He'll come to the role with a breadth of knowledge, having spent over three decades working tirelessly in support of U.S. relations with Latin America and the Caribbean. In light of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the challenges that our hemisphere faces, and in particular Latin America and the Caribbean, are severe. Uh, Latin America and the Caribbean have about 8% of the global population, 30% of COVID deaths in the world. From worsening economic inequality to the healthcare challenges to the rising tide of authoritarianism across the Americas, there's no better person equipped to deal with the region's challenges with empathy, humility, and dedication. And again, Leopoldo Martinez has not just seen it, he's lived it. And he understands some of these challenges and feels them very, very deeply. His personal story makes him uniquely qualified. After his family fled Venezuela nearly two decades ago, he has dedicated his life 
to giving back to that country and supporting democracy and human rights there and throughout the hemisphere. I'm confident that his life experience as well as his professional background and deep intellect makes him an absolutely perfect pick to be the U.S. Executive Director for the Inter-American Development Bank, and I urge my colleagues to support him. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, thank you, Senator Kane. We appreciate that very much. Uh, we'll now have some questions uh, in regards to the first panel. And let, let me start, Mr. Taylor. I, I had a whole series of questions I was going to ask you, but your statement was pretty clear about your understanding of our concerns about the Human Rights Council. I fully understand the importance of participation rather than not participating. But when you're in a body that has a, a bias in the way that they've organized against Israel, it makes it difficult for us to understand the credibility of the Human Rights Council to its primary function. And uh, I appreciate the comments that you made. I also serve on the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum Board, and I, I know the importance of that assignment and what we have not only contributed by being on the council, but also being exposed to the real challenges of history and the current challenges on the rise of anti-Semitism. And a lot of the bias that we see in the Human Rights Council, although it is anti-Israel, it also has roots in anti-Semitism. So it is a, it's a challenge for our participation at this on, on this council to really make significant progress in promoting our values, but also for this important council to play a meaningful role in regards to human rights abuses, abuses around the globe. So you know the membership, you know its history. What realistically can you achieve by your participation on behalf of the United States if confirmed? Thank you so much for that question and for uh, reaffirming the challenge that I have ahead, which I am fully prepared to take on. Um, so I think I'll, I'll start with the Israel question. I think there are very, very real things that I could do if confirmed at the council. Uh, one of them is just to start with, we've left a very vulnerable country because Israel has not walked away from the council as we did. Uh, vulnerable and alone and standing up to bullies without a lot of support. So to start with, we would show up for her, and, and I in particular, if confirmed, would show up strongly for her. Um, you know, the other thing that I think it's important to do with respect to Israel, she is the only country with a standing permanent agenda item on the agenda of the council, but should be treated like every other country. And we have been successful in the past uh, and I would make it a priority to move any considerations about Israel out of agenda item seven and into the other agenda items where they belong, just like every other country is treated. And, and again, we've had some success with that. And then lastly, I think one of the most important things that we can do, and again, we've had success, is recruiting countries that can be partners and allies to the United States in our agenda at the Human Rights Council to run four seats at the council. We had great success with a country, the Marshall Islands, that has turned out to be not only a champion with us in bringing forward resolutions um, 
you know, supporting the issues that we care about, but has also really stood up to China. And uh, I look forward to bringing other countries on board that will do the same. And then, you know, the other thing that we can do, of course, is to continue to support resolutions that elevate the issues that we really care about and want to see elevated at the council. We should be focusing more on places like Ethiopia, Burma, the Xinjiang region, and what's happening with the Uyghur population there, um, et cetera. I could go on. Sadly, there are many. Uh, thank you for that response. Ambassador Hill, I, I agree completely with your focus on Kosovo and the need for Serbia to take action and recognition. But as I mentioned in my opening comments, I am also concerned about the Republic of Srpska's belief that Serbia is their uh, support entity for their holding out for a unity type of a government in Serbia itself. So tell me how you see this unfolding with U.S. mission advancing the uh, security and peace in the Balkans, recognizing Kosovo, but also Bosnia's challenges moving forward. Thank you for, for asking that, Mr. Chairman. I think with respect to uh, Bosnia, Serbia is a signatory country of the uh, Dayton Peace Accords, and they need to be held to that. Uh, obviously, the situation in, in Bosnia has become more problematic. We've seen Srpska trying to take steps to, to get out of, uh, of uh, for example, judiciary uh, issues and, uh, and uh, the common military. Uh, the Serbian president, uh, Aleksandar Vucic, has made very clear there is not going to be any change, and he absolutely supports continuation of these institutions. But I think this will continue, frankly, to be a, a work in progress, and I think we need to work very closely with the Serbs on our common position that uh, we need to support uh, Bosnia's unity. And uh, I think uh, uh, the Serbs are under no illusion that we would, uh, we would look for some kind of change in Bosnia, any kind of unilateral uh, such change. And so I think we will have to work very closely with them and make it clear that uh, the Republic of Srpska's future is in Bosnia, not in some other entity. Well, I agree with that. But the Dayton Accords were never meant to be the final answer to Bosnia. I recognize that Serbia was a signatory and not living up even to some of those commitments. Yeah. But we got to move beyond that with uh, constitutional reform within Bosnia for its future. And Serbia could play an important role in making that a reality. Uh, if confirmed, I would expect and look forward to considerable discussions within Belgrade about the, uh, our, our mutual interest in a successful Bosnia. And I think uh, we can find common ground with the uh, Serbian government, with the Serbian leadership on this point. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Senator uh, Portman is in an extremely generous mood today as far as uh, yielding time. We've been joined by Senator Roy Blunt, uh, who would like to make an introduction. And, and, and Senator Portman has agreed to withhold the questioning at this stage uh, for Senator Blunt's introduction. Well, thank you, Senator Cardin and uh, Senator Portman. I know that uh, the nominees are eager for your questions, particularly our former colleague, Senator Donnelly, uh, can hardly wait to answer questions. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to have this privilege uh, to take a minute of their time. 
uh, as I get a chance to join Senator Warner, who earlier introduced our, our good friend Fabiana Jorge. Um, I want to thank you for letting me be here to talk about her uh, nomination to be the United States Alternate Executive Director of Inter-American, the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, I'm certainly honored to join in welcoming her to the center, the Senate today. Uh, our friends, our families are close friends and have been since uh, our son started pre-kindergarten together about a dozen years ago. Uh, I have spent a lot of time with Fabiana at uh, soccer games and their house and our house and other places. Uh, and so I come with some strong sense of who she is as a person. Uh, to everything she does, she brings uh, integrity, a desire to help others. Uh, she's always well prepared. And I think she's well prepared for uh, this job. She's had three decades of experience in international business and trade, uh, and I think that'll make her incredibly valuable as an addition to the leadership of the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, Fabiana founded a global consulting firm that focuses on uh, protecting intellectual property and access to medicines. She has extensive experience involving several international trade agreements including uh, the USMCA. Uh, she holds a bachelor's degree, and this might have been pointed out already, and a master's degree in business administration from Columbia University. Her bachelor's degrees in political science uh, and with especially in international relations uh, from Catholic University in Buenos Aires. She served as an adjunct professor at the University of El Salvador uh, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I have no doubt, if confirmed, she will be incredibly successful and effective uh, in this job. It's a real honor for me to have a few minutes today to share that with you, and uh, I look forward to supporting, uh, supporting her uh, confirmation on the floor and hope that the committee uh, is able to move quickly, and in spite of everything, the Senate also would be able to move quickly and uh, get uh, this uh, nominee confirmed. Senator Blunt, it's a pleasure to have you before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We thank you for being here today, so thank you. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Thank you, Senator Portman. Senator Portman is recognized. Great, and, and thank you, Senator Blunt. But we look forward to um, having an opportunity to ask some questions of uh, Fabiana in a moment. In a moment. Um, Ms. Taylor, I, I noticed that when the United States re-entered the UN Human Rights Council that uh, Tony Blinken made a powerful statement. He said that the Council suffers from serious flaws, including disproportionate attention on Israel and membership of several states with egregious human rights records. He said the U.S. must push back against attempts to subvert the ideals upon which the Human Rights Council was founded." End quote. So you have some, some help from the Secretary of State in doing what you've talked to Senator Cardin about. You've touched on some of the things you would do to end the Council's anti-Israel bias. Um, they have shown an unyielding and continued bias against Israel. And Senator Cardin and I have been involved in this issue for some time. Since 2006, when it was found, they've passed over 90 anti-Israel resolutions. By the way, there's more resolutions than they've passed condemning uh, Iran, Syria, North Korea, China, Cuba, and Venezuela combined. Um, they have, as you in indicated earlier, uh, put Israel on uh, agenda item uh, seven, um, so it'll be on the agenda at every single meeting. 
So I guess my question to you is sort of the follow-on to what you have already said. You said you will take steps uh, to try to address these concerns, but what if the council fails to change? What will the repercussions be from the United States? What should they be? So thank you for that question. And you're absolutely right that there have been more resolutions against Israel than, than any other country. Um, and again, I, I would argue that we have made really significant impact when we are present at the council. The number of resolutions is far less. Uh, the, this egregious, open-ended commission of inquiry was founded when we were not members of the council. Um, you know, I, I can't change the, the permanent agenda item if confirmed immediately, but again, I think that we can continue to force those issues to come under other agenda items and prove that agenda item seven is not necessary. And then again, look for those partners and allies who when we might be ready to collectively present a resolution to get rid of item seven would be ready to stand with us. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I served at one point on the subcommittee on human rights that meets in Geneva uh, under UN auspices. And um, I was honored to do that representing our country, but I felt like much of what I did there, and this was before I got involved in elected politics uh, and after the first Bush White House, but a lot of what I did was to talk to countries that should have been allies of ours about the fact that they should not be going along with some of these egregious activities, uh, particularly overlooking the human rights violations in some countries uh, that I just mentioned. How would you work to change the voting practices of some of these American allies who far too often vote in support of the Council's discriminatory anti-Israel agenda? Specifically, will you be making more of an issue of these votes as a part of our bilateral relationship with those allies? No, absolutely. I, if confirmed, look forward to working with bilateral ambassadors in all of the countries that we have good relationships with, and as you said, should be our partners and allies. We have to show up. And you know, I know that, that there are differences of opinion about whether we serve this body better by abstaining from membership and, and therefore calling out the challenges versus that you know, engagement. I think if we're not at the table, we're on the menu. And so we, we need to be there and we need an ambassador there. We were blindsided by a Yemen vote because, again, those partners and allies that we expected, we didn't have someone there building those relationships and making sure that we were all on the same team. So if there, I would work very hard, again, with both our bilateral ambassadors and with the representatives from those countries to build those partnerships and make sure that they know that America is back and that we are there to support one another on the council. Well, thank you. I, I think our... Both of our mics are, are off, which is fine. We can just yell across the room. Uh, but uh, I hope you'll ensure, um, if we're at the table, that we're aggressively at the table so that our allies are not uh, part of the uh, menu either. Um, Ms. Albright, I appreciated our conversation last week. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I am concerned, as I told you in our call, about some of the politicization of the um, approach toward development finance institutions. There was a diplomatic cable sent recently to uh, the U.S. embassies uh, saying that the United States would unilaterally be ending support for most overseas fossil fuel projects while committing the Development Finance Corporation and the Millennium Challenge Corporation 
to spending over 50% of its future budget on projects that are directed to climate change. Um, look, I'm not opposed to institutions supporting climate solutions, but I strongly believe that this is a change that undermines the founding principles of the MCC, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, for which you are being nominated, by predetermining project selection. And it writes our bilateral partners out of the process. Uh, you know, they're going to make their own decisions. And uh, interestingly, this past weekend, I was in Ohio at uh, what is dubbed as the most efficient natural gas uh, utility power, power station in the entire world. It's a brand new natural gas um, power generating facility, uh, replacing coal-fired plants, therefore reducing emissions substantially. This natural gas plant, by the way, is going to start mixing hydrogen, which has zero emissions, into its mix of fuels. And um, it would not be able to be considered as, as part of the MCC's work if it were uh, in one of these developing countries. So my, my question for you is the same one I posed to you when we talked. Do you share my concerns that these programmatic changes made to the MCC project selection process is politicizing the agency? And do you agree that we should stick to the fundamental principles of how MCC has selected projects in the past? Thank you very much, uh, Senator Portman, uh, for your question. Uh, you've touched on uh, a fundamental aspect of how MCC works, which is uh, that the countries uh, very much look at the issues that they face. Uh, that's at the heart of the constraints to growth uh, process that you're familiar with at MCC. Uh, increasingly, we see that one of the biggest constraints to growth uh, that countries are facing are climate-related issues. Uh, and so an example of a project that MCC has done uh, in this regard is uh, one in the Philippines to help uh, build a road that was then protected uh, in the face of uh, typhoons. Uh, it is not my intention to change uh, how the agency works in this regard. Uh, at the moment, the agency does have a coal-free policy. Uh, the administration has announced uh, some executive orders uh, just in the last uh, day or so that uh, the agency will have to take a look at. Uh, and we'll continue to have a case-by-case -case basis in this regard. And I very much look forward to being in touch with uh, your office and the other offices uh, to continue to be in touch on this very important issue. Okay, I mean, that's not, that's not uh, a satisfying answer for me. Uh, again, I think MCC has a huge role to play, and I'm a, I'm a big supporter, as you know. Uh, but if we're going to use this as the overlay, we're going to say that no fossil fuel project can be supported uh, by the way, China is happy to support those projects, as are other countries. And some of these projects are going to reduce emissions substantially. I mentioned natural gas, including LNG projects that could be U.S. Uh, funded, but also that the actual natural gas could be provided by us, which is cleaner burning natural gas, by the way, they're going to get from Russia or other places. And you're saying you're okay with that. Senator, I, again, I thank you very much also for the, uh, the example that you've given. Uh, I think that MCC, uh, I'm not there yet, uh, but if confirmed, will continue to be uh, take the matter on a case-by-case -case basis and also look at uh, the administration's uh, recent guidance that has been issued. Well, that's, that's not in the uh, MCC charter that is, you know, part of legislation that we have laid out. So, again, I'm, I'm concerned about that, and we've got plenty of work to do um, and to tell countries they're not eligible. Um, because they're not following a particular prescription, whether it's in this area or other areas, it seems to me violates the, 
the foundational principles of MCC. Senator Donnelly, welcome back. The Holy See plays a unique role uh, in so many ways uh, in organizations like the United Nations, in regional organizations like the Organization of American States, the Arab League, African Union. Um, as ambassador, what will you convey to the Holy See about working with the United States to advance our shared interests in these multinational bodies? That the, that the United States will be a, a continually strong partner with the Holy See in promoting um, human rights, religious freedom, fighting against human trafficking, working for climate change, working to make sure that um, we can promote the interests of people around the world and that they have a partner they can rely on. And this is a, um, this is a friendship that has been across hundreds of years, um, that we have had extraordinary representation at the Vatican on behalf of our country. And so just when they look, they know they've got a friend. Just one quick one, and then I want to turn back to my colleague yeah, because I'm over time here. But um, there's right now an issue with China, as you know. Uh, I think the Holy See would like to work more closely with China. I think they've been told by China they have to sever their ties with Taiwan. If they want to reestablish relations with China, the price of doing that is ending the relationship with Taiwan. What are your thoughts about this uh, and the Holy See's uh, Chinese relationship, and how are you going to deal with it if, if confirmed? Well, I would urge a strong position in favor of human rights in China uh, to the Vatican. And that human rights also reflects religious freedom. We see the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang, um, where there's constant attacks, where they've been put in camps. We see the Chinese Communist Party trying to um, uh, make sure that they are the ones who choose who the next Dalai Lama is. We see in the Catholic bishops that um, they've been in the middle of that for a number of years now, and religious freedom would indicate, as it does in our country, that um, people in the church pick who their bishops are. And so um, what I would say to them is stand strong for religious freedom, stand strong for human rights. Taiwan has been an exceptional friend to the Vatican. I have not um, seen anything that indicates they are moving away from relations with Taiwan, but um, Taiwan has been a faithful and strong partner to them. Thank you very much. And, and I'm going to uh, get back to my colleagues now, but Ambassador Hill, of course, I have lots of questions for you, which, which I may send some for, for the record, but mostly just to say, given your extraordinary background, I'm pleased that you have agreed to reenter the role of a diplomat, and I look forward to working with you. Thank you very much. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I would just begin by echoing Senator Portman's comments, Ambassador Hill. I'm delighted that um, you are rejoining the diplomatic arena, and um, particularly that you are being nominated to be ambassador to Serbia. Um, and let me, I meant to begin by congratulating each of you on your nominations and saying I look forward to working with you, um, if confirmed, to address the many challenges that you will face. And Ambassador Hill, I do want to start with you because um, Obviously, the Western Balkans are very important to Europe, and maintaining peace in the Western Balkans has been challenging over the years, as they have been the source of several of um, the conflicts that have spread far beyond the region. So can you 
talk a little bit about how, as ambassador, you would see your role in trying to encourage Serbia to be um, a constructive member of the Western Balkans, particularly with respect to what's happening in Bosnia? Yes, uh, Senator. I think there are a number of issues that uh, concern me uh, about uh, contemporary Serbia uh, and the contemporary Balkans. One, of course, uh, the chairman already raised, which was the issue of Bosnia and the continued efforts of politicians in the, Ser in the Serbska region of, of Bosnia to suggest that they have a different future than the future that has been already laid out. Uh, you know, NATO was never, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Dayton was never supposed to be some immutable uh, future for everybody. The point was that you cannot do this unilaterally. If, there want, if people want to make changes, uh, changes can be made, but they need to be made together. And we're not seeing that from the uh, Serb Republic. We're seeing uh, Mr. Dodik uh, really operating on his own in a way that I think is very deleterious for the entire country. So first of all, I think it's very important that we have uh, clear-eyed conversations with the government in Belgrade to uh, make them understand that our level of effort with respect to Bosnia, our level of effort with respect to the entire Western Balkans continues to be very serious. And we will look very carefully to see who is helping to steer things in, in the right direction and perhaps who is not. So I think Bosnia is, is absolutely crucial to how we, we can work with Serbia in the future. The second area, of course, is Kosovo. Uh, there has been some progress in talks but there's also been a kind of frustrating lack of progress in talks. The European Union has made very clear to, the, to Serbia that it has conditioned eventual membership for Serbia on the basis of whether they can work these issues out. It is to say that the European Union does not want to bring in problems that countries have with their neighbors. They want that countries that do, do aspire to membership and do eventually achieve membership do so in the context of good relations with their neighbors. So I think working with the, with the government in Belgrade and trying to be helpful in resolving some of these issues with Kosovo, I think, will be very important. And thirdly, I would like to mention the fact that for some 75 years, I mean, uh, ever since really the end of World War II, we have looked at Belgrade as a special place where we do not want to see a growth of Russian influence there. What we are seeing today is precisely the kind of issue that we need to be vigilant about and prepared to do something about. Uh, it is particularly worrisome to see Serbia, for example, looking to uh, make purchases for their, for their military, purchases that are, are necessary. They are trying to have a first-class military, but it is worrisome to see that they look to the Russians for some of this. It is also worrisome to see that some of their infrastructure needs, and they have great infrastructure needs, uh, they look to, uh, to China to help uh, uh, satisfy those. So we need not only, only to be vigilant, but we need to be prepared to see 
to show them that we offer a better model. We offer better uh, alternatives for them. It is not enough to simply say there are problems in accepting Chinese or Russian uh, proposals. It is, it, that in and of itself will not be enough. We need to show that what we have is better and better for Serbia, and that would be my intention if confirmed. Well, thank you. Very well said. I appreciate that and look forward to being able to work with you. I'm out of time, Mr. Chairman, but can I ask one more question from um, Senator Donnelly? You are being nominated to take over a, a really exciting position as ambassador to the Vatican, and I wanted to get your thoughts. One of the things that I admire most about Pope Francis is his commitment to refugees, and I know he just came back from the island of Lesbos, where I had a chance to visit in 2015, right in the middle of the height of the Syrian crisis and the migration crisis across Europe. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you see your role as ambassador in the United States role in working with um, Pope Francis and the Vatican in support of refugees, which has become a huge challenge in Europe, in the United States, across the world? It is an extraordinary challenge, Senator, and thank you for the question. Um, I remember when I was in the mm -hmm. Senate that um, I was at the Syrian refugee camps at the Kilis border um, in, in Turkey, and to see uh, the damage and destruction done to those people by the Assad regime uh, took your breath away. And so there are people, um, not only there, but obviously um, around the world, refugees, who the church's mission is to look out for the poor, to um, look out for those with the least among us. If you, uh, we're all familiar um, with the Bible verse, whatever you do for the least of us, you do for me. And that is what Pope Francis is trying to carry out. And I actually think when we work closely with the Vatican on this issue, it also helps to protect our own country. It helps to promote safety and security here when this is an issue that, is, um, that has good people working on it, trying to find solutions and trying to find the answers for these families who, in almost every single case, just want to make sure that their family is safe, that their children can have food, and that they have a future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Sheen. It's my understanding that there's no further questions. I, I just wish to acknowledge that we were joined on WebEx by Senator Booker, Senator Van Hollen, Senator Young, Senator Johnson, and Senator Schatz was here. So uh, there being no further questions at this particular time, there may be questions for the record. We'd ask that you respond to them as quickly as possible. And we will now go to our second panel.
But let me welcome our four nominees and thank you for your willingness uh, to serve our country. We thank you and we thank your families because we know this is a shared sacrifice. Uh, let me um, acknowledge the four of you in this order if you would then make opening statements. We'd hope you keep it within five minutes. Your full statements will be made part of the record. Uh, we have a first, Ms. Oren Washaw, uh, who happens to come from the state of Maryland, and that's not the reason I'm introducing her first, although maybe it is, uh, was the Deputy Assistant Administrator for the African Bureau of the Coordinator for President Obama's Partnership and Growth in the Trade Africa Initiative at the U.S. Agency for International Development. She also served as the Director of the Office of African Nations and a senior advisor in the Multilateral Development Bank Office of the Department of Treasury. Ms. Weishaw has lived and worked internationally more, in more than 50 countries for over 30 years. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree from Theoretical Mathematics and French from Capital University in Columbus, Ohio. Mr. Uh, Ms. Eno Abong, who currently serves as the acting director of the U.S. Trade and Development Agency as acting director. Uh, Ms. Abong leads the agency's partnership with the U.S. private sector to develop sustainable infrastructure and foster economic growth in emerging economies. She has also served in several previous roles in the agency, most recently as the general counsel as well as deputy director and chief operating office officer. She earned JD from the University of Michigan Law School and a master's in communication from the University of Michigan, a master's in history from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, we then have Mr. Leopold uh, Martinez, uh, who is the founder of the Center for Democracy and Development in the uh, Americas. Uh, he served on the Small Business Legislative Commission of the Commonwealth of Virginia and currently sits on the University of Mary Washington's Board of Visitors and the Sorensen Institute at the University of Virginia. He's also served in the Transition Committee for Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. Uh, Mr. Martinez has worked with large international law and accounting firms and has extensive experience advising Fortune 500 companies, private equity funds, multi-Latino corporations, international business, and nonprofit organizations. And then we have Ms. Fabiana Jorge currently serves as the Deputy General Counsel at the Office of the United States Trade Representative. In this role, she provides legal advice to senior USTR officials on all legal aspects regarding trade negotiations, implementation of trade agreements, and trade-related legislation and regulations. Ms. Jorge was the lead lawyer for the United States-Mexico-Canadian Agreement, handling the legal aspects of the negotiation as well as the implementation package that passed Congress in early 2020. She was an adjutant professor at the University of El Salvador in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where she was born. She holds a bachelor degree in political science with a specialization in international relations for Catholic University in Buenos Aires. So we have four very well qualified individuals. Uh, we'll start first with Ms. Washaw uh, to be United States Director of the African Development Bank for a term of five years. Uh, first, we'll yield to Senator Portman. Let me just a brief opening. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to the nominees who are before us. We've got a very distinguished panel on some very important issues. International banking and development institutions are a critical aspect of our national security as a country. Smart, focused, and tailored programs by these institutions help combat poverty and promote democratic values through providing reliable development assistance. They also play a crucial role right now, in particular in providing 
developing nations an alternative, a viable alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which saddles countries often with insurmountable debt and uses that debt as leverage to exact geopolitical concessions. So it's extremely important that you're here today and you're willing to step forward. It's, a, it's an experienced group. I do want to say that uh, to Ms. White Shaw, uh, your Ohio connection at Capital University in Columbus, Ohio, uh, makes me biased uh, toward you. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then we have a Michigan law grad. I'm also a Michigan law grad. Uh, Ms. Ebong, thank you for being here as well. And, and uh, I can't talk as much about that connection since I'm an Ohioan and a Buckeye. Uh, but I appreciate that uh, great education. And to the others, uh, you know, welcome. Uh, we, we have to uh, acknowledge that Fabiana Jorge got more introductions than anyone else uh, today at, at the hearing, which must, must mean something. And uh, so not to leave you out, uh, uh, Leopoldo Martinez Nusete, um, your background is also very impressive, and we look forward to hearing from you all. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Portman. Uh, Ms. Washall, you may proceed. Thank you, Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Portman, and esteemed members of this committee. I am honored to have the opportunity to speak with you today. And I'm equally honored to have been nominated by President Biden as the next United States Executive Director of the African Development Bank. Mr. Chairman, I wish to pause to recognize some members of my family who instilled in me the critical values that have brought me to this point in my career. My mother, Mildred Randall Weichi, a role model of family values and caring. My father, William Weichi, a World War II veteran who taught me to work hard, do my best, no matter what the task, and my beloved husband, Lieutenant Colonel Shaw, an Air Force Academy graduate who served for several years at the Strategic Air Command and subsequently at the National Security Agent where he was the vice chair of the SIGET committee. And finally, my sister, who is watching this hearing today, Stephanie Weichi, who has been my steadfast supporter my entire life. Africa has been a central theme of my life and my career. My first contact with the continent was when I was selected to go to Zaire on a technical team supporting a World Bank loan. The role was my first brush with international development. Subsequently, I joined the United States Agency for International Development to support the financial sector expansion in Tunisia. I fostered exploration, of U.S. private sector investment opportunities for companies such as Dole and General Motors. As Citibank Vice President for Africa and Eastern Europe, I successfully negotiated the conditionality with the International Monetary Fund for the purchase of Cote d'Ivoire's entire cocoa harvest on behalf of Hershey. Based on my work in Tunisia, USAID chose me as its first private sector advisor for West and Central Africa, based in Cote d'Ivoire. In Abidjan, I also served as the private sector advisor for the U.S. Executive Director at the African Development Bank. I work as the director for the private sector unit at the African Development Bank. And I also, when I returned to the United States, was selected 
as Treasury Department's Director for the Office of African Nations. I'm particularly proud that while at Treasury, I supported development of President George W. Bush's African Mortgage Market Initiative, which resulted in an interagency effort to spur growth of housing finance for middle-income Africans, building upon the experience and the expertise of the U.S. housing industry. In 2008, I was asked to join and support USAID's first leadership role in a G7 session. Finally, before I left in 2020, I served as the USAID Africa Bureau's Deputy Assistant Administrator for West Africa during the Ebola epidemic and then as the Deputy Assistant Administrator for Southern Africa during the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. Africa is a continent of exceptional opportunity with a dynamic young population and natural resources. But as we all know, there are daunting challenges. African countries can only succeed in meeting these challenges by drawing upon the efforts and the ingenuity of the totality of the populations, including women, minorities, and underrepresented groups. African countries must adopt greater transparency and accountability to attract sustainable foreign as well as domestic investment. Such reforms are necessary to address corruption and confront the threat of unsustainable financing from non-transparent players. The African Bank is in a particularly good position to assist these countries meet these challenges, but that said, the African Bank must also follow through on institutional reforms to boost capacity, enhance oversight and accountability, bolster financial stability, and improve selectivity. If confirmed, I will draw upon my experience in the private sector, the public sector, and not-for-profit sectors to advocate for these reforms and their consistent implementation. I am honored by this nomination, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with the committee to advance U.S. interests in Africa and the mission of the African Development Bank for both mutual benefit. Thank you for your consideration of my nomination this afternoon, and I would be pleased to answer any questions you may have. Uh, thank you very much for your, for your comments. We'll now listen, uh, hear from Ms. Abong, the, to be Director of the Trade and Development Agency. Thank you very much, and good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Portman, distinguished members of the committee. I am honored and grateful to appear before you as the President's nominee to serve as the Director of the U.S. Trade and Development Agency. I would like to take a moment to acknowledge my family, my sisters, Iang Ebong Harstrup and Ima Ebong, my nephews, Magnus and Hawkon Harstrup, and my partner, Keith Taylor, who is with me here today. I am blessed to have their unwavering love and support. As an immigrant from Nigeria, my presence before you is reflective of the possibilities that exist in this country. It is also reflective of the values that my late parents, Ime and Rose Ebong, instilled in my sisters and me. My father was a public servant who worked to shape Nigeria's economic development as a newly independent country in the 1960s. 
My mother worked in the private sector and focused on human capital development, or as she put it, making sure people were equipped to both contribute and succeed. My parents taught me the value of public service and making a difference in other people's lives. Most of all, they showed me the value of a good education and the importance of being able to put that education to good use. That is why they encouraged me to come to America for opportunity. These are the values that drew me to this country, and these are the values that I've exhibited throughout my life and career. If confirmed, these are the values that I will bring to USTDA. USTDA is a foreign assistance agency with a mandate to support US jobs. That makes it truly unique. USTDA is the only US government agency that focuses exclusively on project preparation with the express goal of positioning US companies to meet the infrastructure needs of our partners overseas. USTDA has excellent results. Currently, the agency generates $117 in US exports for every program dollar spent. USTDA has supported more than $76 billion in US exports since its founding in 1992. This includes small business exports from 370 communities across the United States. I am proud of my role supporting USTDA and these results. After completing law school at the University of Michigan, I worked at an international law firm with a focus on business and finance. This prepared me to join USTDA in 2004 as the attorney advisor for the Africa team. As a career civil servant, I rose through the ranks of the agency, serving as the general counsel and then deputy director and chief operating officer. I also served briefly as the agency's acting director. I am personally and professionally committed to USTDA. I am proud of my association with its highly talented and motivated staff that has driven the agency's incredible results. They have made USTDA the most innovative and effective US government agency. In fact, USTDA was recognized as one of the best places to work in the US government for three consecutive years during my tenure as deputy director. If confirmed, I will bring my deep understanding of USTDA's programs, policies, operations, and talent. I will bring my ability to build, manage, and lead, and I will bring the values that my parents have taught me. My vision for USTDA is one of shared prosperity for our overseas partners and for the United States. If I am confirmed, USTDA will continue to work with US industry and across the US government to advance high quality infrastructure overseas and support good paying jobs here at home. These efforts will include engaging more of America's small and diverse businesses. USTDA will also use its full range of tools to level the playing field for American companies facing unfair competition in emerging economies. If I am confirmed, USTDA will remain focused on critical economic sectors, including clean energy and transportation. The agency will also work toward connecting millions more people to the internet 
and providing improved patient care through stronger healthcare infrastructure in emerging economies. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you, your staffs, and the administration to advance USTDA's mission. I believe that I have the knowledge, experience, and commitment to lead USTDA, to make a difference at home and abroad, and to build global partnerships that will be good for all of us. Thank you for your consideration and the opportunity to appear before you. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much for your comments. We'll now hear from Mr. Mart Martinez uh, to be the United States Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Bank. Thank you, uh, Chairman. Good afternoon, uh, Chairman Carding, ranking member, and esteemed members of this committee. I'm deeply honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to serve as the U.S. Executive Director to the Inter-American Development Bank, IDB. I am grateful for President Biden's trust to serve our great nation. I am joined today by my wife, Ana Luisa. Her support is unmeasurable to me. My children, Leopoldo, Ana Luisa, Eduardo Ignacio, Alejandro, my parents, Bernardo and Beatriz, my extended family and many uh, Latino leaders I know are tuning via live stream from Florida, Michigan, California, New York, Massachusetts, Mexico and Venezuela. Integrity, intellectual curiosity, hard work, and public service are the bedrock values upon which I was raised and I have strived to pass down to my children. Their steadfast support and unwavering fidelity to American values have made my mere presence here possible in the first place. Our American journey started 16 years ago when my family and I were forced to flee Venezuela and seek refuge here in the United States. Simply for raising my voice as an outspoken champion for democracy and human rights against a socialist dictatorship. From the moment the United States opened its doors to my family, we have worked to give back and make this great nation proud. My family story is an affirmation of the American dream and a testament to the promise of our country. Nowhere else would this story be possible. Following in the footsteps of my grandparents, both key founding figures of what once was a strong and exemplary, exemplary democracy in Venezuela, I've dedicated a significant portion of my career to public service, mostly, uh, most recently serving in the University of Mary Washington, the University of Virginia, and the Commonwealth of Virginia. Throughout my pri private and public sector career, I've worked firsthand with the inter-American system and participated in complex negotiations and initiatives for development and political reconciliation, all key competencies necessary to serve and excel as the U.S. Executive Director to the Inter-American Development Bank. When I was a law school professor in Caracas and as a visiting scholar at Harvard Law School, I argued and advocated in my teachings that the United States has a critical role to play in ensuring the success of the Inter-American Development Bank, a belief that has only been solidified since those days. With over three decades of working on U.S. Latin America relations, a robust network of stakeholders across the region, I am prepared, starting on day one, to work with Congress, particularly this committee, the executive branch, the IDB leadership, 
to create opportunities for equitable economic growth and to deepen economic relations with our hemispheric partners. I will bring to this role my extensive professional credentials in the legal, economic, and financial sectors. I have significant experience on project finance, sovereign borrowing, debt restructuring, institutional economic reforms, social impact entrepreneurship. In addition, as an international lawyer and consultant, I possess valuable experience throughout the Americas, working with large international law and accounting firms, Fortune 500 companies, private equity firms, multi-Latina corporations, international businesses, and nonprofit organizations. Senators, if confirmed, my highest priority will be to advance United States' strategic interest in the hemisphere by building partnerships and programs for sustainable development in the region. Fulfilling that mission begins by ensuring Latin America and the Caribbean can not only recover, but build back better from the COVID-19 pandemic. To that end, the United States, including through the IDB, must lead in the region to reduce poverty and inequality, strengthen inter-American supply chains to outcompete China, facilitate the transition to stronger, greener economies, and address the root causes of migration. Chairman, ranking member, and members of the committee, since its founding in 1959, the IDB has improved the lives of millions in Latin America and the Caribbean. I welcome the opportunity and the privilege to ensure the United States continues to play a significant role in this institution. It would be the honor of a lifetime to represent our nation as the United States Executive Director at the Inter-American Development Bank. In addition to bringing my vast body of work and technical expertise, I would also bring to this role the hopes and dreams of immigrants and political refugees that have contributed so much to our country. It would also be an honor to be the first Venezuelan American immigrant to be appointed and confirmed by the U.S. Senate to a position of leadership and trust in our government. Clear-eyed about the challenges before us and driven by boundless opportunities to make difference, I respectfully ask for your favorable consideration to my nomination, and I look forward, senators, to answering any questions you may have. Gracias. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Martinez. appreciate your testimony. We'll now hear from Ms. Jorge to be the United States Alternative Executive Director of the International American Development Bank. Thank you, Senator. And before I start, I want to thank very much Senator Warner and Senator uh, Blunt for their kind introduction today. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Portman, and distinguished members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, thank you very much for the opportunity to appear before you today. I am humbled and honored to have been nominated by President Biden to serve as the alternate U.S. Executive Director of the Inter-American Development Bank. I am the youngest of seven children born and raised in Argentina. From a very young age, my parents, my school, and my religion reinforced the importance of trying to make the world a better place. I am deeply thankful to my parents and siblings for their unconditional love and the values they taught me. I was in sixth grade in March 1976 when a military coup d'etat took place in Argentina. And I remember the discussion that my parents had that night about what was about to come. By the end of his rule, the dictatorship had kidnapped, tortured, and killed over 
30,000 people. This experience changed me in a profound way and has deepened my love for the United States, our democracy, our freedoms, and the opportunities we have to work hard and to live the American dream. I began my career in Argentina as a trade negotiator and a professor at a university. I organized the first seminars on political campaigns after the fall of the military government. That is how I met the love of my life, my husband, Doug, who is here with me today. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. I am so grateful to God for the family that we have built together with our wonderful children, Christopher, Philip, and Nicole. During my first decade in the United States, I opened and ran Latin American Caribbean practices for two firms. At one of these firms, Bernard Liepfer, or DLA Piper as it is known today, I was blessed to work with leaders on both sides of the aisle, such as former Treasury Secretary Lloyd Benson and Senator Bob Dole. For the past 21 years, I have been the owner of a consulting firm representing clients on matters regarding trade, international business, and access to affordable medicines. I learned to work with different stakeholders to build coalitions and to appreciate the importance of seeking common agendas independently of where each person was coming from. As this committee knows, the COVID-19 pandemic has devastated Latin America and the Caribbean. In 2020, while global GDP contracted 3.5%, the region's GDP decreased on average by 7%, with some individual countries experiencing a significantly higher rate. Poverty in Latin America rose 12.5%, affecting more than 33% of the population. Over 200 million people are now poor in the region. As of December 6, the region had 18% of the COVID-19 cases worldwide and 29% of the death, even though Latin America and the Caribbean represent only 8.4% of the global population. If confirmed, I look forward to advancing U.S. interests in Latin America and the Caribbean by helping our partners recover from COVID-19 pandemic. To foster political stability in Latin America and the Caribbean, we need to ensure sustainable and inclusive economic growth and job creation by fostering more regional integration, a better enabling environment for the private sector, stronger macroeconomic policies and better governance, including anti-corruption, institutional capacity, respect for the rule of law and democratic norms. This is particularly true given the efforts of China and Russia to increase their influence in Latin America. The Inter-American Development Bank is uniquely positioned to make a difference by providing development financing that reduces poverty and inequality, and if confirmed, I will work closely with this committee to advance our national interests in stability and progress in the region. Latin America and the Caribbean should be key strategic partners for the United States on economic and security issues. If confirmed, I will work with the Biden administration, Congress, and the professionals at the IDB 
to help the region prosper and play a new and important role in the global value chain. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Portman, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you again for your consideration, and I look forward to answering your questions. Well, again, thank you for your, your comments, and to all four of you, thank you for sharing your life experiences and how you have used that in order to strengthen our community. We appreciate that and your desire to serve our nation. I have some preliminary questions that are asked of all nominees for this committee about the cooperation with our committee. I would ask that you answer by simply yes or no. Do you, each of you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Yes. Do, yes. You, do, you, do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Yes. Do you commit to en engaging in meaningful consultation with policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. 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 Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 Uh, let the record show that to each of these four questions, all four nominees responded in the affirmative. I'm going to reserve my time and uh, yield now to Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd like to begin with Ms. Ibong. Um, and you may have heard some of the discussion in the earlier um, hearing with respect to influences by Russia and China in Eastern Europe, and particularly in the Western Balkans. And I wonder, in your view, how do USTDA's investments in Eastern Europe, energy projects in Poland, um, 5G infrastructure in Turkey, how do those help lessen dependence on energy and digital infrastructure from Russia and China? And, and can you also talk about how you would prioritize those kinds of projects? Thank you very much, Senator, for your question. Uh, USTDA's objective is to provide sound alternatives for our partners all over the world uh, in the developing and middle-income countries, uh, particularly those alternatives that are reflective of the best that US uh, companies uh, have to offer. Uh, and so with respect to uh, Eastern Europe. In fact, uh, just today, uh, we had signed a, a grant uh, with Ukraine to provide a complete regulatory analysis uh, with respect to uh, making available uh, small modular, modular nuclear technologies, small modular reactor technologies, um, new technologies that are being advanced and developed now. So our goal is to be um, at the point that uh, technologies are being developed and find uh, the way to access, to provide our companies access so that we can provide our partners alternatives um, that are based in partnership, based in mutual benefit, based in the best solutions that we have to offer. Um, in terms of prioritizing, uh, we look to uh, our partners to understand their needs, to US industry 
to understand where they are in terms of their developments. Uh, and we uh, look to uh, the guidance uh, that, is, um, we, that, that is available uh, from uh, our, uh, the, the administration and from our uh, works working with the committees as well. So this is really a question for you and for Ms. Whiteshaw, because one of, the, one of the efforts that we have undertaken for several administrations now is to recognize the role of empowering women in um, the economic life of countries. And as you're thinking about investments um, as you, Ms. Whiteshaw, are thinking about investments in Africa. How can we do more to encourage um, supporting um, women-run businesses? And how, how do we see those as a, an investment that will pay dividends, um, not just in terms of the businesses themselves, but in terms of contributing back to the communities that women are living in. Thank you, Senators. As I indicated in my statement, African countries, the only way they're going to be able to truly meet the needs of their people to have the economic development that we all hope for is by using the totality of their populations. And women are certainly 50%. During my career, I have had a passion for dealing with women, credit, business. As a White House fellow working at the FTC, I produced a film, Women and Credit, that was shown in every small business administration office throughout the country. I was a member of the board of the North Carolina Planned Parenthood and subsequently on the Federation Parent, a Planned Parenthood uh, board in New York. As chair of Plan USA, which is a large, relatively large, not-for-profit organization, it was a pleasure for me to manage the pivoting of that organization from a more general economic development to an organization that is now focused on the empowerment of women and girls. And finally, I'm on the board of the World Bicycle Relief, a smaller not-for-profit, working primarily in Africa, which is providing access to transportation for women and girls predominantly so that girls can go to school, so that women can have access to health care services. In terms of what I could do and what the bank should be doing if confirmed, it is assuring that policies, that programs, are not only highlighting the importance and the requirement that women and girls be part of those discussions, but also making sure, and this for me is, has always been a critical issue, it is not just the policies, the regulations, the strategies, it's the consistent application. And so the oversight that the board can have, if confirmed as a member of that board, to make sure that there is consistent application through our oversight so that women and girls can be equal partners in the development of their 
economies, of their communities, of the world is something that I would certainly continue to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. Uh, thanks, Mr. Chairman. Ms. White, so I had a couple of questions for you. Um, and, and, it, and it focuses on something we talked about, the global inequity of energy. So there are 2.6 billion people around the world who cook using open fires or stoves fueled by wood, by charcoal, and by dung. In sub-Saharan Africa, an estimated nine out of 10 people cook with these sources. As a result, close to four million people die prematurely every year from illness attributed to indoor air pollution from cooking. Cook smoke is described as the most deadly of all indoor pollutants. So May 6, 2021, The Economist, I think I mentioned this article to you before. I have the article here, and I'm, Mr. Chairman, I asked to put this, rec this into the record. Without the, objection. The, the headline of the article is, Donors Make It Harder for Africans to Avoid Deadly Wood Smoke, Making the Cleanest the Enemy of the Clean. The article makes a point that one big obstacle is that donors in rich countries, the United States, are reluctant to bank investment in any fossil fuels, even though the alternatives to natural gas are wood and charcoal, and they are worse for the environment and for the cooks and for the children. But that's the policy of this administration. This is exactly what the Biden administration is doing. Last week, media reports indicated the Biden administration has ordered U.S. agencies to immediately stop financing of carbon-intensive energy projects overseas, period. So the people of Africa, the world's poorest, are in effect being asked to bear the, the, the cost. So I look at this and say, how many more people living today in Africa is the Biden administration willing to let die in the name of renewable energy goal and not allowing them to move to cleaner energy? Thank you, Senator. The issue of energy is certainly something that is a critical factor for economic development, not just economic development, but also for access to social services, health. You need a refrigeration, which means you need energy. So I agree with you that energy is certainly something that has to be looked at because Africa has a paucity of energy, energy generation, distribution, and usage. It is my understanding that the African Development Bank is looking and support a wide variety of energy projects. If confirmed, I would certainly look at every project based on the merits and the needs of the country, the overall context of the African Development Bank strategy in that country, as well as taking guidance from my colleagues at Treasury on the implementation of the administration's strategy for fossil fuels. We are not, the African Development Bank, I cannot speak because I'm not in the, yeah. in the administration. And and my time is ru running out, so if you could just, okay. let me get to the next, go ahead. I was going to just say that the African Development Bank, while we are the second largest shareholder, we do not have a veto 
I can certainly explain and present the administration's view, but it will be the members, the shareholders, that will determine whether or not projects are being approved or not. So, so all of Africa, population 1.3 billion people, accounts for a little more than 3% of total global electricity generation. In comparison, Americans use more electricity playing video games than all of Nigeria, a nation of 200 million people. So despite the, uh, the energy poverty issues, the administration, the Biden administration, is refusing to help finance and support traditional energy projects. And this administration, this president, is asking countries in Africa to leapfrog, that's their term, over traditional energy resources to power itself with solar, wind, and renewables only. We used those sources to build our economy, but we're not allowing African nations the same opportunity. Why is this administration blocking countries living in poverty in Africa, some of the most impoverished nations in the world, from using traditional energy sources to build their economies? These people are living there and suffering today. Senator, you're absolutely right. I was not involved, obviously not being in the administration, I was not involved in the discussions of the policies that were put in place, but I will certainly be conferring with my colleagues at Treasury and would be happy to get back to you with the responses. Mr. Chairman, if I may, one, one last question, because African countries are speaking out against these policies by the administration. Recently, the president of Senegal explained that ending gas financing for Africa, he described it as a fatal blow. He says at a time when several African countries are preparing to exploit their significant gas resources, the end of funding for gas sector under the pretext that gas is a fossil energy would bear a fatal cost to their emerging economies. Senegal has significant reserves of natural gas. The, the development of its energy sector is a fundamental pillar of the country's economic development. I think we visited by the time you know, my trips to Ethiopia, the reason that women die in childbirth is because they don't have the energy for to use the devices that they need to help that woman through the, through the birthing process. On October of this year, the president of Uganda wrote an opinion editorial in the Wall Street Journal, said solar and wind force poverty on Africa. If this is the U.S. forcing poverty on Africa, he said, Africa can't sacrifice its future prosperity for Western climate goals. The president of Uganda explained, this stands to forestall Africa's attempts to rise out of poverty, which requires, as you said, reliable energy. African manufacturing is going to struggle, he says, to attract investment and therefore to create jobs without consistent energy sources. So I would just, if confirmed, I ask, would you ensure that the bank promotes an all-of-the-above energy policy rather than something which will condemn people to live a life in poverty that's inescapable for them? Senator, if confirmed, I certainly would not support policies that would keep people in poverty forever. I mean, that's not why the African Development Bank or why we're members of the African Development Bank. And again, I will confer with my colleagues at Treasury to get back with you. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Brasso. I just, uh, in response somewhat to Senator Brasso's point, I, I was in uh, Glasgow and know of our efforts to work with the African nations in regards to their energy needs. And one of the issues that was brought up frequently 
is that the developed world really needs to put its technology and resources behind the development of the developing world if we expect that they're going to make the type of sacrifices that are necessary in order to, to meet our, uh, our uh, uh, greenhouse gas uh, targets. So uh, I think uh, Senator Brasley raised some very important points, and I know that's going to be part of an overall strategy that we have on, in the developing world to make sure that they are treated fairly. So. I appreciate the response. Uh, I want to raise one additional issue, and you all are going to get saved by the bell. We have a vote on on the floor. Uh, and that is, um, particularly in our hemisphere, Mr. Martinez and Ms. Jorge, uh, I am concerned about the rising corruption within our own hemisphere. The impunity rates in, in, in our hemisphere and many countries are just outrageous. Uh, the uh, governmental corruption growth in several countries are, 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 are very well documented. We need to make sure that our participation in our hemisphere to help people do not fuel corruption or oligarchs that are stealing the resources from their own people. So I would ask that you develop uh, a strategy, an anti-corruption strategy as part of our participation to make sure that the efforts that we make are not diluted because of uh, the uh, advantages going to uh, corruption and corrupt leaders. Uh, and if you have a comment on that briefly, I, I'd be welcome to take it. Otherwise, uh, we'll continue this conversation at a later point. Thank you, Senator. I'd like to take the opportunity to welcome your concern and, and your comment and, and express to you that it's also a, a concern I share with you. And, and many members of this committee. Corruption is a corrosive uh, force throughout the region uh, and in the world, and we have to combat uh, corruption in every front. I think IDB has developed best practices to make sure that corruption is not in presence in any decision or bidding process or selection of, of contractors, providers, the bank work with, uh, and also to make sure that the countries implement reforms that ensure uh, anti-corruption practice. I, I would also say that IDB offers, uh, Senator, uh, a very important tool to ensure that we fight corruption across the region, which is uh, institutional policy lending uh, uh, projects. Uh, we can work in reforming the judiciary, uh, helping institutions throughout the Americas to be ready to support uh, anti-corruption practices uh, throughout the region. Thank you for that response. Uh, yes, Ms. Jorge. Thank you, Senator. Um, I would like to add to that that I agree with you 100%. I think corruption is a cancer of society, uh, democracy, inequality. Um, but I would like to um, mention that uh, the Biden administration last week in, um, in the summit of democracies release an anti-corruption plan. And I'm really looking forward to working with the administration and with Congress and with the bank, because if we don't address this issue, uh, the impact that we are going to have will be very, very minor. Thank, thank you for that. And I, again, I thank all four of our witnesses for uh, their willingness to serve our country and for your responsiveness at this hearing. Uh, the uh, record will stay open until the close of business Wednesday, tomorrow, December 15th, for questions 
for the record. We would ask that you respond as promptly as possible and as completely as possible to any questions that might be asked by members of this committee. That goes for both panels. We'll get their, the close of business t tomorrow. And with that, there being no further business, the committee will stand adjourned with our thanks to our nominees.